I don't always say your gut instincts aren't 100%, but they are pretty accurate sometimes. And so I believe that now AI is revolutionizing not only one industry, but every industry. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I am so excited to welcome Jennifer Bittinger to the show. Jennifer, as I warned you, I always have my guests give a little bit of an intro for the audience who doesn't know them yet. It turns out that anything I came up with from LinkedIn is almost always out of date by the time I read it. So welcome to the show. I would love to get your personal introduction of yourself and your work. Thank you, Les. Thank you. This is great. I always love coming on podcasts and getting to know more people who are excited and hungry about what's happening in our world, especially in business and technology. I am currently the president of Narrativa, a generative AI company, and I reside in Southern California. So most of the days are sunny, can't complain, but <laughs> when, you know, I'm really excited to talk today with you about what we're seeing in AI, what we have experienced in the past, what's happening right now, and what we're seeing for the future. So it's great to be here. Thanks, Ledge. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You know, obviously, hard to avoid AI now, the two most popular letters in the zeitgeist. And what I've had fun doing is talking to business leaders lately who are kind of like, yeah, y'all, we've been doing this a while and it's cool that everybody is catching up. And here's what we know already that is valuable and useful and real businesses are deploying in the space. And then how does that relate to this sort of massive hype boost, which is, is probably pretty good for business, but also the entrance then of all kinds of businesses that are claiming to be the AI for whatever. And then talk about that hype cycle in what's real and what's not. I think that is a primal business challenge right now. I know I need to do this, but it's paralyzing. The number of options has just exploded in eight months. So where and how does this work? And tell the story a little bit and we'll get into it. Thank you, Les. Yeah. So just to give you a little bit of my background and Narrativa's background, and then I love what you're wanting to talk about today. First of all, Narrativa was founded in 2015. So we're not a brand new startup. We've been around for a little while. We survived the AI winter <laughs> that happened a few years ago where there were AI companies that all folded. But we originally were founded in Madrid, Spain by my founder and still current CEO, David Urente. He actually had two successful exits from marketing agencies that he founded previously and the number one problem that he always was getting from his clients was they never had enough ongoing, engaging content, right? And we know content is key for not only sales, retention, acquisition, but then also for branding and for brand development. So you always are needing content. Everyone does, regardless of whether you're a marketing agency or a law office. So he said wait, maybe I can come up with some kind of proprietary AI software to turn data, whether it's proprietary data or third-party data, and turn it into text. 
So he and two other data scientists developed our own proprietary AI software in 2015. They did this so well that they started getting clients like Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, Financial Times, Infobuy, big media companies who we were helping to turn, let's say, the stock market index feed from Dow Jones into articles for the Wall Street Journal, right, for their stock market index articles. And so we were doing this really well. We started expanding from Europe now into the U.S. market. And then in 2019, I came on board as a part investor, part owner, and then also to really help expand the brand of Narrativa in the U.S. market. Because I said to myself, okay, I see trends, and I'll share a little bit of my bio of why this is so important. But when I see trends, there's always this aha moment that I said, this is going to radically change not only one industry, but multiple industries, if not the whole world, and how we work every day. And I knew there was something about AI that was going to be that component. So I came on board 2019 serving as president, really my job is to really expand not only our business development, but also operations in North America. And we are doing that so well that now we've gone from marketing, media, gaming, and even finance verticals to now we're hitting big time. Pharma verticals are exploding now. They're usually the last to adopt a new technology for good reason. Uh, because our lives are on the line. I mean, let's leave government and education out, but well, yeah, yeah, I let's, agree. Let's leave yeah. those guys out. You have to think, okay, they're highly regulated because our health is on the line. And that's a good thing. They don't want to fly by the seat of their pants with every new technology out there. But after a lot of vetting, now Narrativa is the number one AI software company that is almost fully automating most of the regulatory documentation for clinical trials. And this is huge. I mean, we've gotten the farthest along in this process. We have several other competitors who are coming right up behind us, helping to educate the market, which I think is really great, building that appetite. But that's really where we're at right now with Narrativa. But to give you a little bit, I'll tell you, ironically, my, this is funny, my story about how I got into Narrativa. So My background, and if you went on my LinkedIn, you'd see my bio, is very diverse, okay? My background is primarily media and tech. I was the kid that was not the best in math and science. (laughs) I struggled. I always asked for extra credit, okay? I never saw myself as the brainiac who could cure cancer, right? But I love technology. I've always had a thirst for technology, I'm very good in media. I understand how content works, messaging and branding, how powerful it is. But when in 2004, 2005, I was working in a job where I got to meet with the founders of Hulu when they first started. And this is way back, okay, when before Netflix was even in the OTT platform, we still got the DVDs from Netflix in the mail at that time. Hulu, when I first talked with the founders, I remember it was like a website that had content and you're like streaming. I don't know. At that time, I didn't understand. I was like, okay, you're putting TV shows and movies on here with very few ads. Okay, that's cool. But then how are people going to pay for it? And at that time, it was all a new concept. And Jason Killar, one of the founders of Hulu, you know, I knew he was on to something, 
but it was still morphing, right? Still evolving until more people got on board, like Netflix and everyone else saw the stars that were coming. And it's interesting because for me at that point, when I was talking with Hulu, when they were first starting, I had the same gut feeling that this is going to revolutionize how we absorb content and how we watch content. And it has. Look at the last 15 years. It's been amazing, the revolution that's happened. So I truly believe that I don't always say your gut instincts aren't 100%, but they are pretty accurate sometimes. And so I believe that now AI is revolutionizing not only one industry, but every industry. And as you're seeing with this new chat GPT explosion, it's exciting, but now we have to make our way and weed through a lot of the chatter and a lot of the hype and find what's actually really concrete, what's going to actually help our lives and stay around 10, 20, 30 years from now. Right. Yeah. I think everybody wants to know that answer, but I I think they're maybe coming on the heels of the crypto insanity. You know, people are at least a little less apt to fall over for total hype. Show me some actual business implementation and results. And I think that Credit to the companies like Narrativa that were like blazing that trail some seven, eight years ago, because there are real actual business implementations of, I mean, you know, so I've been in this long enough that we called it big data and then the machines could learn. So let's call it machine learning. And then it became AI. And I'm not even sure anybody knows all the difference between those things, but let's, let's roll with today's flavor with the idea that we became so excellent at humans at storing information that was then remarkably useless because we couldn't pull it out and do anything with it. So we have petabytes of unstructured qualitative data information, God knows what, and and still pay humans to track through that and produce other outputs that based on an AI model can be statistically created with pretty high fidelity, right? This all makes sense to my business brain. Why do you think it finally hit maybe the interface style of just saying, hey, wow, there's an impressive factor to it where it it isn't a business solution only, although the reality is all the money is going to come from from business just like cloud. That's a great question, Ledge. And I had the opportunity to speak this spring this year, 2023, with the Women in Tech Conference. And one of the biggest things that I shared with them was the timeline of AI. So a lot of people don't know this, but AI has been around for almost almost a century. (laughs) So officially, they say, this is what history has told us in the timeline, is that officially it was founded in 1951 by Christopher Strachey. He had a group at Oxford that wanted to create a machine that would actually automatically play a song. And so it actually was created first for music, which is cool. My media background gets excited about that. But he was wanting something that could automatically play the certain notes at the right time. And he did it successfully, but then there was no way to apply it to everyday life. So he had this, this is right after World War II. This is a great invention. But at that time, we didn't have the machines, right? The computers. And we didn't have data, large amounts of data to use this type of automation solution. Speed up the timeline. You go to 1961, 62 to like 1980s, early 80s, where the large frame computers are being built. The 
very large ones. That's when you have IBM and everyone's creating these huge large frame computers that can actually handle the taxing computerized task of going through. Like your AS400 revolution, DAX and all these things. Yeah. I mean, which I think they say 78% of all financial transactions are still residing on those running in COBOL, but that's another question. Yeah. And then, but we didn't have the data, the mountains of data that could run on that. So then you speed up the timeline, you come to the late 90s, now early 2000s, where you have Intel and you have, okay, now people, we actually have different components that absorb and collect our data, including our smartwatch, our smartphone. There's so much data out there about you and me that it's crazy. It's kind of scary how much data is out there. What do we do with it? See, so now I think we have the hardware, we have the data. Now was the actual perfect time for AI to exist and actually evolve and become an everyday part of our process. So that's kind of the timeline of what people believe has happened up till now. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the ability to talk about the word intelligence is the real thing there, right? Like we, in any context of business, we have tons of information, we have tons of knowledge, but we can't turn it into anything that approximates wisdom or intelligence until we have enough that ultimately these things are just giant math problems. Basically say like, what's the statistical likelihood that the next word should be this based on consuming all the information in my context, right? So you know, that the particular ends itself, that makes a lot of sense that you would write financial and you would write like procedural paperwork and all that. And you could do that with higher fidelity than you could with the open-ended questions, which helps you dodge the hallucination problem. You can't hallucinate on your filings for your drug trial. That would be uh, kind of bad, right? That makes a lot of sense. And I think it, it brings back into the conversation then to me is like for business leaders, you now have the opportunity to implement a new paradigm of all the stuff, which is so crowded. And now that it's going to be like paralyzing. So now you have a decision-making paradox analysis by paralysis. Like I'm going to be eaten by this. I don't want to be eaten by this, but I don't know what to do. And I imagine that on the front lines there, you're having a lot of those conversations of, all right, what now? I love it. Well, Ledge, this is cool. And I'll tell you, I just got off five phone calls this morning <laughs> since 5 a.m. And the number one thing is even the most brilliant scientists, they're seeing that chat GPT is great. It's powerful. But again, large language models have hallucinations. They are great for conversational interaction. So if you have Bing or if you have Google Bard or someone and you're like, okay, and I even have done this fun exercise where I'm like, okay, I want to come up with a cool intro for a 10-minute talk or, or presentation about the differences between chat GPT and BERT. Okay. All right. So I ask it a question and it gives me possibilities. Now that is not like the law or that is like not 100% truth, but it's giving me suggestions. So I think if we as human beings think of chat GPT in that capacity, we will be safe. Now, like this morning, I had a team from a pharma company ask me if we put in write a safety protocol with ChatGPT and we give it this data set from 100 patients, 
then it gives us a new variable output every time and it has hallucinations. I was like, yeah, you don't want to put anything. Of course it does. No PII. Again, you don't want to trust it with PII, personal identifiable information. Second of all, it is going to hallucinate and it's not going to be structured. So that's where I would say be careful. I tell everyone AI cannot be trusted by itself and we should never. I mean, look at Hollywood. We've (laughs) demonstrated that in enough movies. But as we say at Narrativa, AI and humans are always better together. And the reason we say that is that when we at Narrativa build out our generative AI platform, which people can go onto our YouTube channel for Narrativa Generative AI or on our website, you can see all the demo videos. It's pretty impressive. We tell people this was built with people in mind because it has safeguards. It has QC components. It has actual red areas to flag your content or flag data discrepancies. That's what's actually the best way to do this. And like with medical writers for patient narratives on a clinical trial, the medical writers at first two years ago, they were angry at me because I would tell them about this great AI software that's going to write all their patient narratives for them. (laughs) And they were angry because they thought I was going to take their jobs. But I had to remind them over and over again, this is your AI medical writing assistant. It will give you your first, second, and third draft. But at the end of the day, you are the one person who's going to be the gatekeeper between the data and the regulators, like the FDA or EMA. So I cannot send this AI-generated document straight to the FDA. No way. And I don't want to. I always want to have people as the gatekeepers. And we must make sure we maintain that mentality across every industry. That's right. And that's exactly how it ought to be used. I've heard it described as treat it like a smart intern. It can consume. It's a smart thing that just doesn't have experience. But in the same way that you might have an assistant or you might have an entry-level analyst, this is really cool. I mean, you can feed it more stuff than any human could ever consume. And I use it very much in that analyst capacity. It's like, just consume all of this and tell me what, because if I have to, I use Claude for this, like there's a fantastic tool where you can upload giant papers and PDFs and all kinds of stuff. And Make me a summary of how these two theories coincide or consolidate these two sales models for me into a language that I can understand. That's the way that like and people are concerned, though, it's going to generate stuff and I'm not going to have a job. God help us when we start releasing this stuff into the wild without quality control or just overall intelligence. It's like you read it and you can't put your finger on it, but you're just like, this doesn't sound Right. Exactly. And we need to make sure that we are treating it as, like you said, as an assistant or as a tool, right? It's just a tool really to help with the mundane tasks, the things that are laborious and exhausting. That's what I tell people. Do you love combing through data to find the one error, the one data discrepancy in a huge database? No, we don't like it. So we want AI to help us in those tasks. Yeah, absolutely. Then back out. Now you talked a little about like, just you've got history of AI, history of Jennifer a little bit, but okay, you ended up being the president of an AI company. What came before that? Lessons learned or like key milestones? I'm always fascinated as like the space between 
you don't just end up the leader of an AI company just because it happened. So what was it? Tell your story there. So. Yeah, my journey is interesting. I always say when I was a little kid, I grew up in Kent, Ohio, where Kent State University is near Akron, Ohio. And I was that kid who always prayed, God, please don't let me have a boring life. And he sure answered that prayer. I always laugh. My career has been anything but linear. And so I started out in broadcast. I worked in television for years. Eventually, I started on the talent side and then realized I could make a lot more money on the back end, uh, being a writer, producer, director. And then that's when I kind of got involved working on projects with Hulu, Fox Network. And then I moved 15 years ago from East Coast. And in that time, I worked with quite a few different companies as a brand consultant. And I worked with several companies as like a VP of marketing and branding in media. For me, it was enjoyable because I got to work with lots of big talent, you know, anywhere from Conan O'Brien, and I worked with Oprah Winfrey Network and quite a few great people. I love media. It's still a great industry, but I was really excited when a friend of mine from San Jose asked me to start consulting on some special projects in tech where I got exposed to work with Adobe, Cisco Systems, and some of the bigger tech companies in Silicon Valley. Yeah, a few of those. <laughs> and I realized this world was not only very fast, very progressive. My invoices got paid on time. <laughs> no offense to my media friends. But I just knew, I was like, I love technology and I want to move into that vein more. And so then in late 2018, I had a mutual friend, a business friend who met David Urente at a tech conference and they just really hit it off. And my friend Patrick said to me, Jen, you have to meet this guy, David Urente. He founded this AI company in Madrid. I think you would be really interested. I said, okay, I'll have the phone call. And I had this phone call with David Urente and I just was like in awe of not only what he had already done, with creating an AI proprietary software, but his attitude and his demeanor. I mean, I always say to my team, it's not what you do that's great, it's who you're working with. You have to make sure you're working with the right people to be truly successful. And David is probably one of the most humble people I've ever worked with in my life. He is brilliant. He's the least micromanager I've ever met. I'm so glad. <laughs> that makes a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> and he was excited when he asked me to come on board. He said, Jennifer, you know how to build brands very well. And I have a pretty big Rolodex of contacts. Rolodex is an old word, dating myself. He said, I want you to help us really build into the US market and really help this company grow. And I said, okay, I'm throwing my hat in and I'm off. Let's do this. So here I am. And it's been, I'll be honest, if it wasn't for how awesome my team is, I would have, you know, maybe gotten out of this a while ago because it's really hard, especially before this whole new buzz about chat GPT and everything came on. Our first and my biggest task when I was trying to do business development in the US market was just trying to educate people. They had no clue what AI was. They looked at me like I was from Star Wars or Star Trek especially at pharma conferences when I'm speaking. But now the last year and a half, two years, they're getting it. They're actually, that appetite for AI is growing. 
And what used to be such a chore to bang down doors to just even get a conversation with someone at Merck or Novartis or Pfizer, now they're contacting me saying our C-level is mandating that we have AI automation by Q1 2024. And I'm like, whoa, okay. (laughs) The light bulbs went off. Now people are getting it. So it's been a really crazy, awesome journey. We're now in our Series A. We just opened up our Series A uh, funding round and we're growing big time. And I think in the next two to three years, I would say even next year, 2024 could be our hockey stick year, as we say, where we just explode because our new platform's ready. We already have 20 clients using our full SaaS platform. So we don't even have to customize for them. They're just using it every day. So it's really exciting right now to see what's happening. I love that space of where you just have to honor this. No, really, like I'm hunting anyone to care and I need to train the whole, like carrying the burden of education from a marketing perspective. Like when you're defining a category, it's just everybody who's in this space should thank everybody who did the work on like the basic education because you now look at it and you go, oh my gosh, we have inbound demand, which is like the holy grail from major customers, but it just, it isn't like that at the beginning. And I think that that trough of sorrow probably was a real thing for you. Like, what have I done here? Like I took on trying to build, oh, just the US market, like no big deal. Can you look back and and point to any things that you go, okay, I could have done differently now that I have had that experience. So maybe we can save somebody on the on the early side of, at least if you're stuck in that, do these things. Yeah, I would say for me, the biggest lessons learned were, well, especially when you're dealing with large Fortune 500 companies, okay? I've dealt with them quite a bit now in my career, but you realize there are stakeholders, they're the key stakeholders that can make the decision to bring you on as a new vendor. Let's say in a pharma, a large pharmaceutical company, We had so many people from their innovation teams reaching out to us three years ago, two or three years ago, four years ago. I think I know the punchline of this story. Yeah. But (laughs) we would even run a paid pilot for $30,000, $40,000, $50,000. They loved it. They would cheer and get so excited about this is awesome. This is innovative. And then guess what? They put it in a file and it's gone. They forget about it. They say, we're going to try and sell it internally to our ClinOps or R&D department. We'll let you know when they're interested. And I'm like, that's not working. So that's what I would say to my old self three years ago, two years, four years ago. I would say, try to start at the right place with the right person, even if it takes longer to get through to them. Make sure you're going to the right decision maker, because if not, you may be wasting your time. Now, again, none of our time was wasted because even with those innovation teams, they helped us perfect our product, right? They gave us data that we could actually perfect the software. So none of it was wasted. It was all great. And you ironically, you could have now, like maybe compressed what you end up learning. And, and I do enterprise sales like that. So I know it's like, this is cool. I'm glad you're an excited advocate for me. And I also don't believe at all that you can sell this to somebody who writes a check. How can I? facilitate being part of that conversation. And it's just, 
yeah, huge lesson where you're just like, oh, like how many great phone calls have I had and nothing happens? I always say like my bank doesn't cash checks written in great phone calls. I don't know if yours does, but yeah, I, I feel that in a visceral way. Half of the reason I have this haircut is because of that. And the other half is from parenting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a lesson learned. I think everyone who does business development for any startup or any new tech, they're going to learn that. You got to find out who are the right stakeholders that you have to talk to. Again, another lesson learned, and I'll share this about any startup. I, I speak about it a lot, is you have to surround yourself with key influencers. And I used to talk about this years ago when I was advising tech or media companies, but your ambassadors are your key strategic people that are going to help build your brand. Me, I am new to the pharma space, okay? So if I'm trying to sell to pharma or finance even, I need key influencers from that industry who believe in my product just as much as I do. They believe in me and my company. And they are the ambassadors that can go out and be our cheerleaders to the market. In fact, I really was strategic the last two years to build our own advisory board where we have key influencers from industries on this advisory board for Narrativa. And they have at least 20, 30, 40 years of experience in that industry. They have huge contact lists and they know that they can read the warning signs of how well a product will do in that market. In fact, some of the advisors have already sold their own companies that they built, like a tech company for pharma. They tell me the good and the bad, which is so helpful because they say, listen, be careful of launching this product too soon. Or I don't know if that product you're building is scalable. Maybe put it on the back burner for now and see if there's an appetite from several other clients for that new product. That's what I would say. Don't be the expert. I'm not here to try to be the expert on everything. I need everyone else to help me. So that's what I would say. Always you're always better together as a group than as an individual. And you're talking about those external, you call them ambassadors. I'll often say, you know, evangelists and that people like that where, and that takes time to cultivate that because they are also approached by the nine out of 10 people or like just pitching their thing, or there's a lot of snake oil in the space. And like, how do you authentically connect with and have relationships with very credible people? And I just, think that's the you know blocking and tackling of relational marketing. And, and when you talk about that brand, a lot of that piece is probably that. So we are relational in nature, the way we value customer and influencer feedback. And you're right. I don't think you can shorten that. That just takes time. It's like human stuff. You don't get to just flip the switch on that. And as you get more seasoned in the workforce, as I've now been called, but you, you just realize, yeah, I've collected and made that 1% networking and relationship progress over time. Yeah, I would say, and what, and this is interesting because my team, we're hundred percent remote. We work remotely from all over the world. My team's all over the world, but I still tell them in-person meetings are actually really important. Even clients now don't ever want us to come into their office. No one hardly works in the office. So that's a little bit different than it used to be 10 years ago. But that's why events are so important. And as much as I get so exhausted going to so many events, <laughs> especially because I'm married, I have a kid, it's like 
it's a lot of work, okay, to get to these events. But I'm very strategic now on which events to go to. And at those events, I have really built some of the most incredible relationships. And they all of my advisors came from being at those events. I met with them, took them out for drinks or had took them out for lunch or dinner, really invested to make sure they were the right people. Now I had some others who I was interested, didn't work out. There was something, you know, I kind of kind of listened to my gut again, took my time, don't rush. And it took about six to seven months to really vet all of these people in a friendly way, just in a relationship, building that trust, getting to know them, and then getting to know their intentions. Because yes, you want their input and you want them to be your evangelist, but make sure that they represent you well. Be careful. Yeah, there's that match of like, you know, it's just like it has to fit both ways. And that's just a non-transactional thing that happens between people. And you're right. I, If there's a place for in-person, it's not like I got to fly across the country just to have a meeting anymore. It's like that long form, just let's connect, break bread, have a little personal symposium type of thing. Like that's where people ought to be spending their in-person budget now, not on routine demos or sales calls or whatever that is. And I think maybe we're all learning how to apply that efficiency in the right places. And it just doesn't work for other things. Although that said, I barely leave my house and I, I meet lots of cool people on Zoom. But ultimately, I'd love to be able to get back out there and do that because I think I recognize it even more now. But like we had a, we all had a little break there for a couple of years where we couldn't do it. And just noticing, oh, wow, that's like materially different to sit with a human. So maybe it was good to have a little break and we could tell the difference. So. Yeah. And I think, and I'll tell this to business folks who, you know, a lot of what you said, I think earlier, but there's a lot of new hype in the AI sector. It's becoming its own new industry, which I'm thrilled about. When I go to submit RFPs for RFPs, I like, sometimes they'll have the list of industries that you pick from. And I'm like, artificial intelligence is not on there yet. But hopefully, I would say right now, there's a lot of new hype with so many new startups who are calling themselves AI, generative AI. And they're in a nice way of saying it, they're putting a nice coat of paint over an open AI model. So that's great. But I would tell business leaders, be careful, because they can promise you a lot of things, but look at their track record and ask for use cases, ask for references of clients, current clients that are actually using their technology. I also ask and I tell them, be careful, see how long they've been around. Not that longevity is anything nowadays, but meet with them in person, actually have a beer with them, talk with them, get to know them and see what their goal is. When did they get into the AI game? And where are they going with it? And not that there aren't new companies that are bad, but they're just, they don't have their sea legs yet, okay? And if you're their first client, they need first clients, but just be careful how far, how deep you go with them. Right, or, you know, go in with your eyes open, right? Like have had businesses where we've benefited extraordinarily from the finally one enterprise took a bet on us. And we killed ourselves to get that thing right and got the logo on the site. And that's huge and not always the case. If you have like a a overfunded startup that just dropped $150 million in, but they never really did this because they just changed their deck and put AI on it. 
there's that frothiness and that's not a real business result. So I, I think that's, that's a buyer beware for sure. It is. And it's like dating. I always say for me, business development is relationships. I never say sales. I hate, I don't like the word sales. I think it's terrible. It's very non-human if you say sales. I think it's business development. We're building relationships. And if you are dating someone and you eventually, that contract is a contract, you know, like a marriage contract. You're going to be with this person for a while. I tell business leaders, make sure you have a great vetting process. Make sure that they have their sock one, sock two, their GDPR, everything. They should in- definitely wear both their socks. I think that. Uh, yeah, wear both. Big difference, you know. It is an interesting time. My team and I, we always talk about what's going to be here tomorrow, what's going to be here in 10 years. I think the next two to five years, there's going to be, as of right now, there's a huge influx of new AI companies. But I would say in the next three to five years, they're going to be drop-offs. And not that I'm wishing ill on anyone. I think it's great. Look at what happened with crypto and and blockchain. And there's some of that's still going to be around, I think. But the hype, you know, will will kind of fizzle. I mean, there will be real solutions somewhere. And chances are pretty good that the big companies will buy them all. And you'll st- so what will be here in 10 years? Microsoft. But <laughs> And that's what people ask us. What's They ask me, Jen, what's your five-year plan? I said, hopefully to be a unicorn. And if we're not bought, to buy up other companies. That's like, you know, and to create a big solution, right? That's a great full service plan for people. But who knows? There's a lot. We've already been asked many times to be bought. I've said no. My CEO, David, laughs. I said, I need to have a t-shirt that says, still not enough zeros. (laughs) Absolutely. I agree with that. But I don't want our technology to be bought and forgot. I'm like, it's so powerful and it can be used for so many good things. Please don't buy it and absorb it and forget it. And that's what one of my advisors, she did that with a company. She had a great tech company. And she said so many companies that are brilliant, they get bought, absorbed, and forgotten. And you know, so there's part of that where I'm like, nope, we're working too hard to change. Well, what do they say? Build the thing you don't want to sell. And that I think is, that wraps it up really good. So I'm sensitive to your time and I, I could talk to you for hours here, but Jenna, I, I love it. The insights and you obviously have an amazing, bright attitude and that's so fun to talk to. So, you know, thank you for all of that and for sharing with the audience. Anybody who's resonating out there, how do they maybe get in your zone and reach out or what channels are you on? Yeah, yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. They can go to linkedin.com slash Jennifer Bittinger. If you can't spell my name, it's totally okay, but you can go to Narrativa, N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-A.com. And I'm also there in the About Us and my LinkedIn's connected there. But yeah, I'm always out posting a lot on LinkedIn, even about events that I'm speaking at, even new podcasts coming out and things like that with our new technology. So yeah, be great. Anyone who wants to connect, I'd love to speak with them. Fantastic. Jen, thanks so much for sharing your insights and uh, coming out with us. Yeah. Thanks, Ledge. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. 
We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.